Provident Healthcare Partners is a healthcare-specific investment banking firm whose services include mergers and acquisitions, equity and debt financing, and strategic advisory. On today's show, we have directors A.J. Shaker and Scott Davis. A.J. is responsible for business development and deal execution across a range of healthcare services industries. During his tenure, he's advised dozens of companies that are considering strategic alternatives, including strategic mergers and private equity recapitalizations. Scott leads transactions across a wide range of healthcare services sectors, focusing on business development, marketing, negotiating of deal terms, and due diligence efforts. This requires Scott to be in frequent contact with the financial and strategic investor community to ensure transaction processes are positioned correctly. So with the increased rate of purchase of physician practices by private equity, we discuss the why and the how. Why should a young partner consider selling? If you're considering joining a practice that might be selling, what questions should you be asking? The clear benefits are in the economies of scale and better contracts from insurers as you become a bigger practice. But they also point out the benefits of alternative revenue streams and being able to take advantage of value-based care as being major selling points. We also discuss what the advantages are of physician practices coalescing into larger practice without private equity money versus doing it with private equity. I know you'll learn a lot from this, and don't worry, they've agreed to come back for a part two in the next month or two. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Scott Davis and AJ Shaker, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks, Brad. Appreciate you having us. Thanks for having us, Brad. So I guess I'm a mid-career physician now as I get a little longer in the tooth. So as a mid-career physician, why would I consider selling to private equity if I plan to practice for another 20, 30 years? For the older physicians out there, which seems to be the case a lot of the time, right? They're a step away from retirement. So instead of selling to the younger partners where the amount that they've sold for in the past is good, the numbers that we're seeing from private equity are significantly better. So someone who's a step away from retirement, it seems like it's just about the money. But as someone who's far from retirement, why is that something that I should be considering? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm happy to start. And then Scott, feel free to chime in. Honestly, when we advise companies and physician practices that are considering a transaction, we try to have and encourage as many of the younger and mid-career partners as part of the transaction discussions as we can, because those people have the most questions, typically to your point, about what the long-term value is of doing this transaction. What I can say is that the groups that we've seen go through transactions have typically business considerations and then personal considerations for entertaining something, especially if they have 20, 30 years or more in their life cycle as a shareholder in this business. And just on the business consideration front, some people think about it as offensive play. They have a perception of where healthcare is heading and where they see risk to physician income in terms of being behind the eight ball on value-based care, payer contracting, perhaps having access to ancillary services that can boost their income over time. Some of those individuals may say, I'd like to monetize today while my production is high, while the physician practice is doing well, 
while the overall valuation environment is very favorable as well. And just kind of think about it as I want to mitigate my risk. I don't want to see a significant drop off in my income going forward. Let me partner up with someone else who can handle a lot of that on my behalf. I'd say that applies to a certain cohort of physician groups out there. But I'd say, especially for the kind of large regional groups who have a very stable platform in place, they see a lot of growth opportunity ahead. Some people think about it more from kind of an offensive business strategy perspective, where they, similarly to the defensive-minded groups, see you know some of the writing on the wall in healthcare that bigger will be important, payer contracting data analytics will be important, as well as ancillary services and recruiting. But they see that their business in itself has a lot of opportunity to be kind of a leader in that regard within their specialty. And they see the opportunity to essentially absorb some of those smaller groups who don't necessarily have an option outside of, let's say, joining a multi-specialty group or joining a health system. And the way that a lot of those groups think about it is they're willing to give up some equity in their practice knowing that whatever they retain in equity in their practice will likely have more value, especially as they layer in some of these smaller groups, let's say apply their payer rates to them, apply their ancillary services to them. And, you know, having a smaller piece of a bigger pie just makes sense from a business perspective. But obviously there's a lot more than just thinking about kind of overall direction of a practice that might influence people from considering a transaction or not, if they have a long longevity ahead of them. Scott, maybe you have some kind of experiences from just a personal motivation side of things that could be helpful for our listeners to think about as well. Yeah, no, I think that was well said and you covered most of the bases there, AJ. The one other consideration I might add is that the way that these transactions are conducted, there's typically a reduction in compensation to allow there to be profitability. And that, of course, is what's monetized. It's a unique opportunity to monetize equity in a physician practice that otherwise more commonly leads to an end of career kind of buyout model that's by dollars and cents, certainly less favorable than what the private equity model provides. Additionally, I think the partnerships that are done well and the partners that are the good ones and the ones that are long lasting are ones that can present opportunities to replace that income that's been foregone at close. And so for those that are going to be with the business long term, it's about a meaningful liquidity event at close. It is that equity retention, albeit on a minority basis and a sight line to growth in that equity value. And then also on the income side, albeit less immediately post-close a sightline on that increasing, ideally back to where it was pre-transaction and potentially to beyond, just depending on how profitable that partnership ultimately becomes. It seems like some of this applies to the defensive strategy is for the smaller practices, the offensive strategy is for the larger practices. But is there a point at which a larger practice is going to see significant diminishing returns from their growth, right? Like you're benefiting from economies of scale, you're benefiting from better contracts, from being able to take advantage of ancillary income streams. But is there a size at which you see a practice becoming less efficient? Yeah, it's a great question. I think where we see the diminishing returns happen is when typically there isn't enough integration among the various practices under the umbrella of the organization There might be inadequate internal infrastructure to adequately see what the data and analytics of the day-to-day practice or physician looks like. I think we also see lack of seasoned leadership from either a physician perspective or a business executive perspective that's able to 
lead an organization of that size and maybe have the vision to take it to the next level as well. And I think misalignment of objectives between providers, between the support staff and the management team can also lead to a situation where there just isn't enough momentum to keep the business going and they're more focused on internal struggles than they are capturing the growth opportunity ahead of them. And so sometimes what we see is that groups have a very significant regional presence in a given market. They have a lot of growth opportunities ahead, but because the physicians who ultimately sacrifice some of their income to invest back into some of these infrastructure objectives and hire managers that demand premium top of market salaries, et cetera, you know, there becomes a point where the physicians say, you know, I'm not kind of willing to personally invest in that, in which case it may make sense to identify alternate solutions that could provide essentially the scalability to meet the growth opportunity in the market, while at the same time, not putting the entire physician income stream at risk by, you know, all these investments of which groups don't necessarily know the, the best way to do it in order to set up for scale. That's where, you know, sometimes we do see an institutional investor of some kind, or even a relationship with a management services organization or a, a good quality consulting firm to be able to provide that guidance as far as what's the best way to scale in a sustainable way. Because at the end of the day, a lot of the times we what we hear from our physician clients and people we've spoken with is they don't necessarily teach you everything in an MBA that you get in or everything in medical school that you can out of an MBA program about how to grow and scale. A lot of times it's good business acumen and good resources around you. But that I think is where groups can see a potential diminishing return with size, but it really requires that investment into infrastructure and management team to take it to the next level from what we've seen. I don't know, Scott, if you'd agree with that or if you have any other thoughts. I do agree with the comments. And then one kind of one-off model that we've seen in practice a number of different times, as AJ alluded to, as these businesses scale across regions, the tendency can to become, even if you're a shareholder in the broader entity, to lose sight of what is that entity and what am I really paying into and what am I getting value in? And so one way that we see groups even try to motivate locally is to retain equity ownership at that local level specifically, potentially in addition to the parent entity, but certainly at a local level. And that local level equity could yield distributions based on profitability of that local market. It could just the same hold value at a subsequent liquidity event in terms of liquidation of that equity ownership. Whatever the form it takes, it's geared towards ensuring those physicians feel motivated on a local basis where they can see their inputs and they can see the work they're doing be fruitful to them and their partners. That can be lost sight of when you're talking about a national scale. So if you have like 10 physician practices in a given area that you're coalescing, you would retain some ownership of your 10 physician group, some ownership of the entirety, and then so that you would have incentive within your individual location. You keep, you get to keep some of your identity. You're not losing your identity to this larger practice. Exactly right. And we see it in different forms. Sometimes, to your point, it can be at both levels, kind of Topco and local. Sometimes it's just local and sometimes it's just Topco. And some of that can actually be dependent upon the asset itself in terms of candidly how meaningful it is to the broader platform. We see larger groups, larger assets, those that bring more heft to the business get preferential treatment and ideally some Topco ownership. But either way, it can be a great motivating factor and a really good financial factor for those shareholders on a local basis. So really what I was asking was, is there a point where it becomes getting blood from a stone? 
right? Like you've reached this size and there's just nothing more to, to squeeze out of it. And what you're saying is, no, there always is. You always have to look towards what do you need to be investing in order to make yourself more efficient, nimble with the changing market. And there are always opportunities out there. You just need to hire the right people that are going to see those opportunities and allow you to take advantage of them. Yeah, I think we could go specialty by specialty and name a unique opportunity or more for every one of them. Those are what we know to be today for the same reasons why you consider doing a transaction, that being the evolving landscape of healthcare, that's going to present opportunities, some of them harder, some of them easier to achieve. But I I think to your point, those opportunities will be there. It's do you have the resources, capabilities and know-how in place to respond to those accordingly? And not surprisingly, it's the groups that have coalesced in the past, that have some scale, that are surviving in today's market, and I think we'll continue to do so moving forward. So there's the economy of scale of coalescing a bunch of groups together so that you can hire really high-end management. Then there's the fact that you're bigger, so you're able to negotiate better contracts. But there was also the income streams. That piqued my interest. What are some of the less intuitive? ancillary income stream that you've seen. For nephrologists, you've got dialysis centers. For orthopedic surgeons, you've got imaging and you've got physical therapy, right? What else have you seen out there in terms of income streams that might not be so readily apparent? Again, like I was saying before, it depends on the subspecialty. There's certainly some logical medical streams that could be ancillary service lines. That goes without saying. I think there's the proliferation of things like the ASC model in subspecialties that historically haven't always had those. So that's something that I think is being uncovered over time. I think of, for example, the oral surgery space. We're just starting to see that become a little bit more prevalent in that environment. Whereas you talk to an orthopedic surgeon, they've been doing that for a couple decades already, and they know just how beneficial that can be. So I think opportunistically, there are opportunities within each subspecialty for kind of medical revenue streams to be evolved. I think as the groups gain scale, you mentioned the the contracting capabilities and the sight line on that front. That's particularly true on the payer side. So I think the evolution of value-based care is something that a lot of investors are mindful of. And candidly, I'm not sure that most of those goals are achieved in this initial kind of five to seven year investment period where people are getting involved today. But groups like, as an example, the musculoskeletal space where a lot of people are piling into that from the various subspecialties that are, are within that broader sector, all with a mindset of over time, those platforms developing into an all-encompassing, truly musculoskeletal program that they can control the full care continuum and they can control the full costs of the healthcare system. And they think longer term, whether that's the private equity group investing today to sell this to the next group on the ability to capture that kind of heft from a patient standpoint, as well as contracting capabilities that really is something of the the holy grail as it relates to interaction with payers and ultimately getting a better reimbursement per patient. So that's one that jumps out at me on top of the typical ancillary streams from a medical perspective. Yeah, I think you hit on the two main ones. What we see to be a big point of investment for a lot of our clients once they've done that first PE transaction, and I'm thinking about some of the OBGYN transactions that I've worked on is They build out a full data and analytics department where they look at all the data points from interactions at the local level. The more physicians that are coming into the platform, the more data they have. They can look at outcomes from deliveries and postnatal care, surgical elements within the GYN space, and kind of take that to the payers and create risk-based contract initiatives that either are upside only or eventually building towards full risk 
where, you know, especially groups in the primary care Medicare Advantage type spaces have really seen outsized returns as they're able to create that quality mechanism that gives the payers that what they're looking for, which is a reduction in their cost, but they can also see the benefit to themselves of participating in those ancillary income streams, which again, if you put good clinicians together, have good data and analytics behind it, there's a way to make a lot more money without necessarily having the physicians work harder at the same time. And so to Scott's point, I think all these different specialties, they're going to be at their stages of their development in terms of when they can participate in value-based care. But I think the pervasive sentiment around the investor community and just kind of government entities is that's where healthcare is going. But even on more of a basic level, you've seen groups try to penetrate the B2B service market. So for instance, some of our urgent care clients have sought to take on corporate clients that have 20,000, 30,000, 40,000 employees to do on-site clinics, COVID testing. But also, I think just from a, a financial perspective, what we tend to see is that those larger groups that have a bigger earning stream underneath them, whether they're private equity backed or not, can have access to greater capital resources than the, the smaller groups, just because there's less risk, there's more income streams, and you can get access to debt facilities that are much larger at, at favorable terms. And so even if it's something around as basic as just having access to capital outside of just physician income, that can be another benefit for kind of growth and scale. It definitely happens with the private equity model, but it also happens with independent groups as well. So you're making a great case, but as the physician, I'm part of a large group, physician-owned, physician-run. We have a C-suite of managers who answer to a physician board, but ultimately we don't get involved in the day-to-day. That's for the managers. Why would a practice want to sell to private equity instead of getting some leaders of different regional practices together and deciding to form a group themselves and then hire managers themselves, right? That way they retain. I am skeptical about selling to someone who then is going to be, their interest is not as aligned with mine as mine is currently. You understand? So I'm not sure if I'm explaining that well, but right now we're, I, the people that run my practice see patients like I do every day. And so they're not going to be making decisions that are going to hurt them. Whereas if I'm answering to someone who's not seeing patients like I am, they're looking ultimately at the bottom line. Our interests are not perpendicular, but definitely not parallel. Yeah, it's a great question. Certainly for a lot of our clients, if they have the capabilities internally to hire the the managers that have the vision to keep not only the existing business together, but drive it into the future, they have the appetite to reinvest into the business in order to take advantage of opportunities in ancillary service, lab imaging, audiology sales, whatever the case might be, and then also invest into that data and analytics feature that can be very important in value-based care contracting. That honestly is a lot of the, the PE strategy, but what we tend to see is sometimes physicians not necessarily having the appetite to fund that themselves. And you know what we've seen in a couple other platforms is that year one with the private equity partner, they're often investing 10, 20, $30 million of the PE firm's capital into the back office functions that can set up this much larger entity which, you know, from what we've seen, a lot of physicians may not necessarily have the the stomach to sacrifice their own income and and personally guarantee to do so. But at the same time, I think what is important when you 
think about the right PE or doing a PE deal is finding the right partner that can help accelerate what you all have as a vision in a risk mitigated manner. If someone comes in and it just says, oh, we're going to give you capital, like you probably don't need capital at size and scale. You can go to a bank and get money, but it's more about what sorts of resources can they bring to the table, whether it be from experience building and scaling into, let's say, a national organization, taking into account the factors needed to drive, let's say, a risk contracting vehicle that could be value additive to the positions in the company going forward, and what other relationships they may be able to bring, whether that be from acquisition opportunities in different geographies or relationships with health system CEOs, payers, et cetera. And so at the end of the day, a lot of our clients, they don't necessarily need to do a transaction and many of them will be perfectly fine reinvesting into the business at their desired clip. Some of them, what they think about is, is there a partner out there that help accelerate our vision in a risk mitigated manner, which ultimately is where the rubber meets the road. If you do your diligence, you vet all the partners out there and, and no one can really kind of provide you what you're looking for. We're always of the mindset of saying, just keep doing what you're doing because the, the formula is successful. It only really makes sense to do so if you can see that path to something much greater than what is on your plate today. Scott, maybe you have other thoughts to find on, the, on there. It's always a, a difficult question because there's so many subjective elements to it, but maybe you have some other perspectives as well, Scott. No, I think it's well said. I mean, ultimately, the key takeaway is just ensuring that it's the right partner. You can do as much diligence as possible on that front. You never know with 100% certainty, but you do what you can. And I think... It's like getting married. Exactly. You yeah. never know. The physician owners in today's environment are at an advantage compared to you know your peers, maybe even 10 years ago, or certainly more than that. And that is, there are so many experienced private equity investors. When I say experienced, I mean specific to physician practice management experience at this stage of the game that simply weren't there in the past. It is not at all uncommon for a private equity firm to be singularly focused on healthcare or maybe even singularly focused on physician practice management opportunities. And what comes with that is experience of having done it time and again. And one thing we run into is from you know, the physician clients we have is they don't understand my world, my practice, so on and so forth. And to some extent, you're right. They didn't go to medical school, these investors. They don't know the ins and outs of, say, an ophthalmology practice versus a dermatology practice from a clinical perspective. What they do know is how to replicate those from an investment perspective and how to work cohesively with their physician partners to do that. You're at the advantage as a physician shareholder of a private equity world that's now more experienced than ever and also is sitting on the most amount of capital, as we call dry powder, that's ever been out there. So valuations are going to be strong, experience is going to be high, and then you engage a group candidly like a Provident to hopefully run a pretty thoughtful process to for you and bring the logical groups to the table. And you know, we work alongside you to let you vet those opportunities. And ultimately, like TJ's point, we have a pretty good track record of ensuring we find the right partnership. But if you don't, you're certainly free to take a step back and reevaluate things. And we're happy to give you some guidance on how to do so. But I will say it's a little bit more of an advantageous position today, just given the sheer experience and positive outcomes that these investors can speak to. And you certainly retain the right to do your reverse due diligence, as we call it, on these potential partners. So it's certainly not a one-sided discussion. You actually answered my question really well at the very beginning. So I just want to rephrase to make sure that I'm understanding it and that my listeners are understanding it as well. If a bunch of physician practices want to get together and create their own larger practice, it's going to take a bunch of capital on their end. So they're going to need to take a bit of a haircut at the beginning as they're hiring these managers, they're changing the structure of the practice, they're 
So they're taking an economic hit in order to invest in their practice for the future. Whereas if private equity is doing it, they're actually, because they're investing, they're taking a bit of by borrowing a bunch of money, then they're paying it to you. So as the physician, you're, yes, there's certainly risk, but you're getting a bunch of capital up front and then possibly a haircut down the road, depending on how many efficiencies they do end up bringing into the practice, because they might make you efficient to the point where they are making up their management fee and even more so, or they may not. So you're getting money on the front end and potentially a haircut on the back end. Whereas if you do it yourself, you're taking a haircut on the front end. So when do you want to see that money is ultimately what it comes down to. Yeah, it's kind of a risk allocation scenario, right? It's similar to when physicians start up their own practices from scratch. If you have the vision and you have the sentiment that putting a lot of your personal dollars into this is going to yield um, significant outcomes down the road and you're waiting to, to wait that out, then by all means, if you have the resources around you, you can plug in that talent, you can grow on your own. That's a great model because you retain 100% of the upside, but at the same time, you have a lot of risk exposure if things go wrong. What we often see is that most people aren't willing to do that all on their own, and they'd like to take some chips off the table, like you said in the beginning, where they get the payout and they have someone else help take the, the risk away from them in, in building and scaling. Certainly with these deals, there's a bit of a push and pull scenario where the physicians usually take some sort of decrease in their compensation to fund the profits that a buyer is investing into. And so in return, you get proceeds. There's likely a, a period of time afterwards where you have decreased income than what you had before. But the idea is you've taken some of that risk off the table and there's the potential of investing into ancillary services, payer contracting that would bring you back up from an income perspective to where you were pre-transaction. You've already gotten the money from the deal. And you also have shares that could either yield continued distributions locally or some sort of equity event down the road. To your point, we've seen physicians start from scratch and build it to a billion dollar business and just hold it 100%. And there's others that say, I don't have the risk tolerance to do it on my own. I'd prefer to bring in a partner to help me do that. Have you seen it where there is no management fee, where the private equity firm comes in and says, listen, we can increase your efficiency so much that you'll be able to keep your income the same, and we'll just take the difference. So we're going to give you a bunch of money up front because we know we can make you so much more efficient. So we're going to buy your equity, but we can guarantee the same income and we'll just take anything that we make off the top. We haven't seen that too often. Candidly, the way that there's cash flow there and able to monetize and come up with that value you're alluding to is through the reduction of compensation. Most often, if not always, these physician practices that are privately owned, they're not profitable in the surface because those shareholders correctly and fairly take the profits out of the business on an annual basis. And so the only way to really create the profitability that an investor is going to apply multiple to and value is to take some form of reduction in compensation. I'd also say the risk profile from that perspective is pretty difficult for me to imagine an investor doing, even for the simple fact of, What's the motivation for those selling partners? And when I say selling, they've done nothing but sold equity and kept all of their income to work harder. Although I understand efficiencies would be driven to ideally be more profitable from the same amount of work. But at some level, it takes buy-in from that physician population to create that additive income that those investors would then scrape off the top. It's tough for me to see a scenario where that plays out and you keep interests aligned on both sides of the fence. And it gets back to one of your prior points is, 
why would I want to give up equity to this relatively unknown partner without serious return and value? And I think the, the only way that really happens to a great magnitude is the monetization of compensation at some level. Whereas, you know, doing it the other way, you're giving up some equity, inviting these people into your house and with the hope that they're good actors. I think you got to mitigate that risk by having a serious liquidity event on the front end, which is what the typical model provides. So there's this liquidity event on the front end, and then there's a, a decrease in compensation, sometimes temporarily and sometimes permanently. So I'm thinking that there are going to be new hires out there that are going to be applying to work at a practice. And they're thinking, is this practice going to end up courting private equity? Is it going to end up being a bait and switch situation where I'm hired by one and end up working at another? So as an early career physician who's considering joining a practice, same situation, what are the questions that you should be asking of a practice? Yeah, it's a great line of thought. And in a lot of the physician group practice transactions we work on, there's significant planning and dialogue around what's the best way that we can recruit and retain new hires, because that's really the lifeblood of the, the business going forward, especially as you think about the tenure and track of physicians currently that may be exiting and need to be replaced at some point down the road. Yeah, you just gave a bunch um, of physicians a bunch of money. You brought them closer to their probable retirement number. So yep. now you've, you're going to need those new hires to fill in their spaces. Exactly. And I think the way that groups try to think about it is to create a scenario where there are wins for the new hires coming in such that they don't feel that they're coming in to support the exit of the much larger or much more tenured shareholders who participated in the initial deal. And so I think that the questions that I would ask as a new grad are, what's kind of my upside in joining a PE-backed practice? I think traditionally, if you're joining private practice as a new physician, that there's income potential that's greater than being an employed doctor at, let's say, a hospital or hanging your own shingle. And so it's thinking about what's that income potential look like over time? What's the upside where I can have a package that looks like a shareholder's kind of package as a result of the deal? And so there's always methodologies that groups utilize, whether that's Bonuses for physicians that come on, pathways to shareholder status where they can buy shares much like they were in a private practice setting and see the, the potential of income increases over time once they've hit that mark. There's also pathways of holding equity if they so desire in the parent company as well. And I think common questions that groups ask are, how can we go back to increasing our income levels such that it's going to be attractive to new physicians coming on board. And so the questions that they're trying to plan around are, how can we get them vested into ancillary services that, let's say, we haven't developed just yet, but will be coming down the road? So can they participate in, let's say, the income of a lab that could be very accretive as we grow and scale and have more tests running through that from a broader realm of physicians? Or for instance, in a surgery center that they can benefit from with facility fees, et cetera. And so it's trying to think about all these income opportunities that will ultimately take the, the physician, the new physician hires to where the old shareholders were at in terms of income. It's again, a, a gradual process, but also where can they become decision makers in either the local practice entity, like Scott mentioned, or even have a pathway to growth to become, let's say, part of a medical advisory board or 
key physician executive in the business as well. I know that was a lot of different thoughts there. Maybe I didn't encapsulate it as detailed as I could have, but there could be other thoughts Scott has there too. As the practice continues to grow and evolve, you didn't get in the ground level at the start of the practice, but hey, you can get in the ground level on the start of the lab. You can get into the ground level at the start of the surgery center. So it's the next iteration of the practice. So you didn't get on the ground level at the start of the practice, but you're getting in at the ground level of this next iteration of the practice. So you can get them excited about other parts as well as leadership, which is a blessing and a curse. We're going to have you do extra work in order to have a say in your practice, but it'll be yours. So there's the importance of that. Sorry, I, I interrupted you. And I think you were about to ask Scott if he had anything to add. I was only going to add the simple fact that the way these deals get done is an employed physician that's moving from a current employed physician to a go-forward employed physician. Those contracts that are in place are assumed altered at all. I suppose a private equity group could attempt to do so, but the way we see it happen successfully and smoothly is to honor whatever that agreement is. When we keep talking about the reduction of compensation, change in roles, things of that nature, we're really speaking exclusively to the shareholder group, those making a decision, those benefiting undoubtedly at close, there's still opportunities for employed docs to participate as well. The go forward assumptions, contractually speaking, for sure, will not change for an employed doc. If an investor is trying to do that, they're setting themselves up for a disaster. And I think those lessons have been learned. So I just want to make that quick kind of clarifying point. But there's also that dicey ground of the in-betweens, right? There's the new hires, there's the partners, and then there's the ones who are close to becoming partners, but not quite shareholders yet. How have you seen them treated. Yeah, that they actually stand to be in a pretty interesting and could very much be a fruitful position. Many times we actually see individuals fast-tracked to partnership that kind of culminates at the close of transaction. That can go in different forms depending on how far you into your partner track. It could be more applicable or not. There could be bonuses awarded that could be reinvested in terms of a partnership buy-in that otherwise would have come out of pocket for that individual over time. A lot of different mechanisms can be used. And I think correctly, both the selling shareholders as well as the investors coming in recognize that might be the most important camp. Those that are well entrenched, are high earners already, are certainly the immediate go forward of that business, viability of that business. And they're the conduit to that younger group as well. And those that are going to be recruiting those younger docs on top of it on a go forward basis. So Catering to them is definitely a unique situation and one that both the investor and selling shareholders usually are, are mindful of and certainly should be. We would be mindful to tell them that. But we see it as a great opportunity for them to, again, potentially become partners today or create pathways that could get them to partnership after close either quicker or at a cheaper, or more favorable rate. Fantastic. This has been super educational for me. I really appreciate it, especially the position that I'm in. So Scott Davis. AJ Shaker of Provident, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. And I'm really hoping to have you back soon for some more questions. Thanks for having us, Fred. Yeah, we enjoyed the time. Looking forward to the next one. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.